Well, if you will open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, 1 through 3 specifically, um, but I've got to dance into the next couple of verses, which I do hesitantly because Pastor Preston is going to be preaching next week on, on the uh, following passage. And just for the sake of context, I decided to dabble and steal from his passage just a little bit, and he's not here to tell me I can't. So uh, there you have it. That's what we're doing. So we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 5 to get us started today. And it says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Father, pray that you will help us to understand your word this morning. Help us to listen and obey. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you today. Amen. Well, as uh, many of you know, we've, uh, Pastor Pres and I have been going through the book of 1 Peter here, and the, the main theme as we've been talking through it has been holiness in the midst of suffering. As uh, that great quote in 1 Peter of the Old Testament goes, God says, be holy as I am holy. And that great command Peter gives to us as well, be holy as I am holy, which harkens back to Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus specifically in 2026 says, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples. That's what holiness is, being separated out. But holiness is not just being separated out. It also means something deeply personal. It also means, as it continues, like it says in Leviticus 2026, that you should be mine. We're not just separated out for no good purpose, we are separated out and special to God. And so holiness is that high calling that God has on our lives as Christians. So not only do we see holiness in First Peter, we also see, uh, like it says in uh, the first chapter there, that we are grieved by various trials. We see suffering, we see hardship in every chapter in First Peter. In every chapter it talks about holiness and holiness practically lived out we see side by side the hardship and the suffering that comes right alongside of holiness, that they are are married together. And uh, just to be clear, the trials and hardship and the suffering that we're talking about in 1 Peter are not the trials that are a result of our, our own sinfulness and stupidity, but they are the result of living a holy and righteous life. It's suffering that comes Uh, out of a result of living in obedience to God and his word. And so again, we see this marriage between holiness and suffering, that they are part of the same river that God has called us to travel in this life. And it's so easy for us as Christians to think if we are holy, that if we live in obedience to God's word, we are separated and special to him, then life should be easy. I mean, we're realists, so we might say not necessarily painless, 
but I think we would all desire to have less pain in life if we were honest. And I think our struggle, again, is very similar to that of Peter's struggle in his early days as he was walking with Jesus. That day when Jesus was talking to his disciples and was telling them about this path of suffering that he was walking on that was leading to the cross and his death. And Jesus, or Peter, would have nothing of it. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked the Son of God. He rebuked Jesus and said, no, the path of holiness does not lead to suffering on the cross. And Jesus rebuked Peter in turn and said, no, get behind me, Satan. Peter, you do not have your mind on the things that of God. You have your mind set on the things of man. And I think that is the heart of our struggle as Christians in everyday life is gaining the, uh, the heart of Christ, to have our mind set on the things of God. That is, in a nutshell, the Christian struggle. We must gain the mind of Christ. And in 1 Peter 4, 1, it says, Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. If we're not thinking like Christ as it pertains to suffering, then we are not armed. We have been disarmed. We are now defenseless against the attacks, against the wisdom of man that exalts itself up above that of God. The mind of man does not understand God or his ways. The mind of man pridefully assumes that it knows what is best. The mind of man is all ready, all too ready to rebuke God himself and reject his plan of salvation and reject the path of holiness that, like the path of Christ, leads through suffering. The mind of man conjures up these deep philosophical questions. How can God be all-loving and all-powerful and yet at the same time allow suffering? The mind of man makes this great assumption that there is nothing good enough that could possibly justify our suffering, that only bad things can come from suffering, and that there is no reason or purpose that could possibly redeem that suffering in any sort of way. And that simply is not the truth. And that is why we must gain the mind of Christ and embrace the suffering and the hardship. I remember going on a mission trip down to uh, New Orleans. Eunice and I, we were uh, newly married. Uh, she had just come to a church that I was serving at over in Wisconsin, and we took a trip down to New Orleans. You might remember Hurricane Katrina that came through and wiped out the levees. The whole city was flooded, and this was a year later. This wasn't immediately after Hurricane Katrina. This was a year later. They were still dealing with the fallout from, uh, from that disaster. And I remember going there and driving through the neighborhoods, and you'd see these orange marks that were, you know, a halfway to three-quarters up on a lot of the homes, and that was the watermark. And then there was markings next to those watermarks that would tell you whether, you know, that the house had been searched and, what, you know, whether they found anyone or animals or anything else uh, for the sake of rescuers. And we came in a year afterwards to go down there and help with the cleanup. And I remember, uh, you know, it was like, let's go on a mission trip. You're like, yeah. And then it's like, let's go and muck out a house that has 
been like destroyed by water and has been sitting in the heat and humidity down south in New Orleans for a year later. And all of a sudden it was like, wow, this missions trip isn't sounding nearly as much fun anymore. I remember getting there and, uh, you know, it's springtime, I believe, but it was already really quite hot in New Orleans. And I remember they gave us masks before masks were cool. They gave us masks, and we put them on to go in the house because there's mold and mildew and who knows what else inside of these homes that have been uninhabited, just sitting uh, in the same way that the, the family had left them in for this whole last year, except just in the soggy, wet, damp moisture. And I remember we were asked to go inside of these homes and to take all of the junk that was inside of the home and take it out into the dumpsters and put it out on the street. We were asked to go inside these homes after we took it out to, to tear out the drywall and everything else that was damaged in the hopes that this family who has been displaced could reclaim their, their home once again. But they couldn't do that until the home was mucked out and clean. And I remember, I was just like, I got there and it was day one, and we were all excited, and, and that excitement just wore off like instantaneously. We're like, no, this, this is no longer fun. You get in there, you know, you're like, yeah, and then all of a sudden you start hyperventilating because you all know what masks are like now. It's hot, it's humid, and you're going up to this stuff. I remember seeing this dresser that had, you know, this big old dresser, and I was like, I'm not taking stuff out. I'm just going to grab the dresser and bring it out. And I started to, like, grab it and drag it out, and the whole thing just collapsed, and the clothes collapsed on the ground. I remember looking up on the ceiling, and the ceiling fan had just, like, drooped like a flower that, you know, just from the moisture and the humidity. And I was like, this is horrible. And I remember picking up stuff off the floor and, you know, holding at arm's length and going and bringing it out, and I was like, this is going to take us another year just to clean out this one house. And finally, there was something that had to shift in my mind, where finally I got to the point where I was like, okay, we can't just be playing this little sissy game of holding all this nasty stuff at arm's length. Finally, I just went and grabbed all this stuff, like hands full, and brought it outside and, you know, to, to the dumpster. And, and I'm glad I did. And this was what, I think this was a similar process all of us went through, but I'm glad I did because that suffering, it was hard, it was miserable, but at the end of the week, uh, actually through the course of the week, we got to meet the family that lived there. And that was super, super cool because they were just like, thank you, thank you. We could never do this on our own. We needed this help. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And getting that house cleaned out and everything, it was the joy of what the end result was made all that suffering that came before, it made it worth it. It was like, wow, the suffering is worth it. The suffering is worth it. Jordan Peterson is a guy, who's a, he's a professor at the University of Tri- Toronto. He's a psychologist, a public intellect, some would say a philosopher. He's not a Christian, uh, just to be clear. Um, but sometimes it's interesting to hear what non-Christians are, are saying and thinking sometimes. And he was doing this interview. I was listening to him, and I was like, uh, uh, he's, he's actually taught on the Bible quite a lot. And some people think he's a Christian because of that. But he's not a self-proclaimed Christian. Um, but a lot of the things he says, I think, echoes the truth of what Scripture has said and teaches. And this is one of those things. He was talking about suffering. He said, suffering is inevitable. It's inevitable. I mean, we've got the perfect equation in this life for suffering. We start off, and uh, first off, we are mortal. We are all mortal. In and of itself, that's enough to cause 
uh, suffering, but not, we are mortals. Not only are we mortals, we are also fragile mortals. Now we've got the equation. Not only are we mortals, not only are we fragile and easily broken, easily killed, easily suffer, not only that, but we also live in a world that is malevolent. Malevolent is not to be mistaken with benevolent. Benevolent means people are actively trying to go and do good for each other as a natural, you know, as what they're, they're trying to, to cause good, uh, you know, for each other. He says, no, we live in a world that is naturally malevolent, that is seeking ill will and hurt and demise of other people. We are willing to injure other people and hurt them to get what we want. And so we've got this perfect equation for suffering in this life. And this was his conclusion uh, that he said. He said he didn't, uh, let me see if I can find it here. He said, life is suffering. It's inevitable. We are mortal. We are fragile. And the world around us is malevolent. What his conclusion was is that we need to find something that is so worthwhile to do that it justifies the suffering. It's like, that's interesting that a non-Christian person would say that because that's exactly what Christ did on the cross. He did something so big that it justified and redeemed our suffering. Hebrews 12, 2, we've read this many times and we're just gonna keep talking about it because I love it. It says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That means that the joy of what was gained was greater than the suffering and what was lost. It was worth it. He justified the suffering. He justified all suffering. He made it worthwhile, and he made it make sense. There's nothing worse than meaningless suffering. Nothing worse than meaningless suffering. And without God, that's all it is. No hope. There's no purpose. There's no redemption of all the suffering that we have gone through throughout the course of history and humanity. There is nothing. There's no purpose to that. But with God, our sufferings are redeemed. And you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the passage that we just read in 1 Peter 2? And I'll tell you, or better yet, I'll ask you a question. And this is my simple question this morning to you is, what is God doing that could possibly justify all the suffering and all the struggles of this life? Not just for us as individuals, but us collectively as humanity throughout the course of our history. What could possibly justify all the suffering of humanity in all these years? And I think the book of 1 Peter, and I think scripture throughout, tells us the answer to that. But in chapter one, it starts to tell us what justifies our suffering is that Jesus saves us from our sins. According to his great mercy, God saved us to a living hope, and he called us to be holy and to be special to him. That's where chapter one starts. And chapter two builds on that and says that God is building a home. Now we see this idea developed through much of chapter two. And again, Pastor Preston's gonna be preaching on that more next week, and so I don't wanna dance in it too much. But verse five again says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now this verse in itself, I don't know if it's one of those verses. Some 
Some verses are like, the, have the wow factor, have the mic drop kind of moments with them. I don't know if this verse has that uh, attached to it quite as much. This verse doesn't have that wow factor. It's a little bit more subtle. Because as I'm looking at 1 Peter, and it's talking, you know, in the first part of chapter 1 and, and uh, first part of chapter 2, it's kind of like looking at the blueprints of a home. You know, have you, how many of you have looked at blueprints before? Uh, yeah, some of you. you yeah, I took an architectural drafting class in high school, and I remember looking at blueprints and things for the first time, and it was so confusing. You're just like, I mean, everything in a blueprint is important. It has to be there, and if it's not written down, chances are it's not going to happen. And so you have all sorts of things. Your eyes are, you know, seeing all these details, and, and you don't know what they're referring to. You know, you've got elevation, you've got the roof pitches, you've got the electrical, you've got the plumbing, you've got the measurements all laid out there. But as you're looking at the blueprints, you're just kind of, it's, it's hard to get the big picture of what's going on. And in 1 Peter 1 and 2, as it starts talking about God building this home, this holy temple, we're looking at blueprints, and it's really easy to just not get a clear picture. What I love, I love those like artist renditions. I love watching those uh, home makeover shows with Eunice where they actually have like the 3D model that's computer generated and you can fly through the house. You can see the house from the front and all the bushes and the flowers. You can see, you know, just how everything comes together and fits in that really big picture. That's what helps me a whole lot. And so we're going to zoom out from 1 Peter when it's talking about God's building a home. We're going to zoom out and we're going to look at Revelation 21, 1 through 4 real quick because it's going to give us that big picture about what First Peter uh, is talking about and God starting to build his temple and his home. It's talking about the new heaven and the new earth. First, uh, Revelation 21, 1 through 4. It says, then I saw a new heaven. This is uh, the apostle John that is writing in a vision that he had that, that God gave him of, this, of the new heaven and the new earth. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The, the earth that we know now and the heavens that we know now passed away. God is making a new heaven and a new earth. And John says, um, they had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God. He's saying, look, this is, the, this is the finished picture. This is no longer the blueprints that we're talking about, you know, throughout Scripture that is important and, and it's special and we've got to have it. But this is the big picture. Look and see what it is. This voice from the throne said, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What could possibly be so good that it could justify all the suffering of Christ, first and foremost on the cross, but the suffering that we go through throughout the course of history as humanity? And this is it. This is it. Jesus went through pain and suffering for this, and it was worth it. God expects us to endure pain and suffering and hardship and persecution because of this, because it is worth it. 
And I got a silly example. I went uh, fishing up at a, a cottage. We were on vacation this last week. And uh, up in Clare, there's a little lake. They have so many lakes up there, they name them numbers. We are on lake number 13. I think that's, that's ridiculous. We actually have names for lakes in Georgia. I guess we don't have enough of them. But lake number 13, we were fishing through the middle of the night for massive bass. Uh, don't ask Eunice how big they were. I caught a, a two-foot northern, which isn't big for a northern, but uh, the family was like, how big was the, was the fish John caught? And Eunice told them, in all sincerity, oh, it was about a foot long. I'm like, no, it was, it was like two feet long. Anyways, I digress. But don't ask Eunice to go fishing with you if you need to pad your numbers a little bit. So we were fishing, and uh, my brother-in-law, we were on a pontoon boat. It's middle of night, 1.30 in the morning. We're fishing for these massive bass. We're catching them. We're really happy. Ivan is his name. He catches this really nice bass. Uh, huge, probably three feet long at least. <laughs> but the bass, it, like, it's jumping out of the water, shaking its head. You know, we're just seeing splashes and hearing it. And the lure is broken when we see the lure finally. I don't know if it broke or if it just shook the hook uh, loose out of the fish's mouth or what happened, but the lure comes flying back and hits Ivan. And, uh, and Titus and I, being really bad brother-in-laws, we're like throwing our lures back into the spot. He just missed the fish. You know, we're not bothering to check on Ivan at all. And, but then, you know, our Christian, our, our godly natures took over and we finally stopped fishing. It was like, are you okay, Ivan? And, uh, and Ivan's just standing very still, and it's because he's got a hook stuck in his cheek. And the other treble, it's a treble hook, which means it has three, and the other hook is like laying down right above his jugular. And I was worried, because I was like, I, I wasn't worried about this one, I was worried about this one, and thankfully that's the only spot he got hooked. Anyways, long story short, we took him to the emergency at 1.30 in the morning and tried to explain how we got a hook stuck in him at, at that time of night, and uh, the doctor comes in, and I remember the, the doctor, you know, he's, he's going to take the hook out. And he's like, to be able to take this hook out that's poking him in the cheek, it's kind of ironic, they got to poke him with another needle. You know, they got to put, I think it's, uh, it's a lidocaine, you know, or whatever um, the local anesthetic is. So the doctor's got to come up and put a shot in his cheek to help deaden the pain. And then they have to, I'm sorry, but i got to tell you the details because it's really exciting. They have to push the hook through because the barb's under the skin. They can't pull it out. So they have to deaden the, the area, push the hook through, cut the barb off, and then pull it back out. Just in case you need it for any of your friends, that's how you do it. Um, but I recommend the emergency room just for the sake of the lo local anesthetic. But the doctor, when he's putting the, before he puts the shot in, he's like, this is going to hurt. You know, this is going to sting. And, and uh, I don't like shots anymore. I think the, Ivan did. He put the shot in. You know, Ivan's kind of, he was a man. He didn't, and I was standing there, so he couldn't let me know it hurt him as much as it did. But then they starts put, he, he stings him, you know, puts it in, and he's like burning, burning, burning. I was like, that's horrible. You know, it's like it, telling him what to expect as he's putting the shot in, burning, 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 and he pulls it out. And, and it's amazing because he's, he's given him that pain He's given them that, that suffering, but that pain and that suffering had a purpose of removing the hook, of taking the barb out in, in a way, the only way that you can take that out without causing more problems. And, you know, it's, it was just kind of that, um, it was that reminder that there is a pain that 
is worth it. That, just, that justifies the pain to deal with a pain that would be greater if it wasn't dealt with. And that is what God has done for us through, the pain, through our pain and suffering and ultimately through the suffering of Jesus on the cross. So in 1 Peter it says, it tells us in every chapter there's going to be pain. There's going to be pain for a little while. But in Revelation it says there's no more pain, sorrow, tears for eternity. And I look at it and I say, worth it. First Peter says there's persecution, physical death. Revelation says no more death for eternity. I look at it and say, worth it. First Peter says this world is not our home. We are foreign, foreigners and aliens. And this is the one I'm like, I'm all for because honestly, I don't want to live in this world for an eternity with all the people who are wicked in this world for eternity. Honestly, that would be like the worst thing ever. And so I'm really ready for this upgrade where God says, instead of that, in Revelations, God's giving us a new heaven and a new earth where we are living with a holy and righteous God and all these tears and sorrow and pain are wiped out once and for all. Is there something that justifies suffering and pain? Our answer as Christians is yes, a resounding yes. When people ask this question of if God is good and all-powerful, why is there pain and suffering and evil in the world? And you're saying because there is something that justifies it and redeems it that makes it all worth it. That is the truth that God gives to us in Scripture. But when we have the mind of man, we will not see that. We are stuck on the pain. We are hung up on the pain. And we cannot see past that to see what God is building, what God is making with his people. He's building a home. And while that home is going to be completed, the new heavens and the new earth and an eternity, I want us all to realize that that home he is building right now. He's building that home now. This is not a future. It will, you know, he's continuing to work on it, and it is a future reality, but it is also a present reality. God is working and building that spiritual house now. Verse 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built. That is kind of like, it is a present reality and a continual reality that will continue to be uh, you perform. He, God will continue, is building, and will continue to build his spiritual house. He's doing that right now. As I was studying this passage, I, looked, I went and looked up 1 Kings 6, uh, where it talks about Solomon building, the, it's called Solomon's temple, even though it's God's temple. Solomon built the temple for God. And it was talking about this, it just, it stood out to me because we're talking about living stones in this passage and God using his people to make this temple for him to dwell with his people for eternity. But I was looking at the original temple that God, you know, that Solomon built for God. And it was saying in 1 Kings 6 that they did not, uh, they, when they went and got the stones for the temple, they went to the quarry. And at the quarry, you know, in my logic, I'd be like, yeah, take the stones, you bring them to the building site, and then you like, you chop them up and figure out how they're supposed to fit and work and everything. It's like, no, that's not how it worked. While the stones were at the quarry, all the work was done on the stones. Then they were transported and they perfectly fit together the way that they were intended. I'm not sure how much to read into that, but I was just looking at that. I was like, that's fascinating. It's kind of interesting that the stones were shaped at the quarry before they were brought to the temple. And it just kind of made me think, huh, this life is the quarry. 
This is where God is shaping the stones, the living stones for his temple. This is the, the spot where the hammers and the chisels, you know, are, are being used to shape us. And that, is the, and that is very much the hardship and the suffering and the pain that we go through in this life. But we have to keep coming back to, but it's worth it. We're being fit together into a spiritual house. So the application of these two truths, one is, I think it's found in the, in, uh, in the first chapter, is that Jesus has saved us. He's called us uh, to be holy. Uh, he's saved us is the first part, but that he is also doing something bigger in that he is building a house for eternity where God will dwell with his people. So the home that God is building his church right now should and must reflect the future home that God is preparing for us in eternity. If God's, it wouldn't make sense if, you know, if Walmart's building a new Walmart and those mega centers, you're like, yeah, we're building a Walmart. And you go and you look at the foundation and the foundation is like 30 by 30 feet. You're like, that's not a Walmart. You know, you're calling the bluff. That's not right. You know, you're like, you know, we're going to have this huge super Walmart. And you see this tiny little foundation. You're like, yeah, right. And any hope you might have had before, totally wiped away. Right? What God is doing in his church right now is building a foundation, Christ the cornerstone, and us, the people that God is shaping into his temple, he's building that right now. And if it's supposed to be this heavenly reality that God tells us about in Revelation, it's got to start looking like that now, doesn't it? If it doesn't start looking like that now, people are going to be like, that's not a super Walmart. That's a Dollar General. Their hope's going to, like, they're going to be very depressed. Another Dollar General? We didn't need that. You know, it's like, that's, that's the same as everywhere else. Um, and it's like, we, we've got to realize as a church that if God is promising and is saying he is building that, and he's not just building the future, he's building it now, what we have now has to be, has, has to get people thinking and seeing of what it will be one day. We have to reflect the reality of revelations and what God is doing in the end of days. The church has to do that. The church has to do that. If God's future home is going to be free from all tears and pain and death, it makes sense that he is rooting out the source of that mindset, of that heart, the attitudes and actions out of his people today. He is shaping his stones now that he is using to build his home. And that's the heart, we're back to the text again, that is the heart of verse 1 in this passage. In 1 Peter 2 verse 1 it says, so, so because Christ suffered and died and you were bought at a great price so that you could be holy living stones, but because he do, did all that, and it also flows because of that and because of God is building a home, it's not only what's coming before but also what is coming after. Because of that, but in this sandwich, God's saying because of those two great things that justify all the suffering and pain and hardship in the world that we could ever possibly go through, he says there's a little something you need to do. Take off your shoes. It's building a home, take off your shoes. That's not literally what it says. But that's essentially what it's saying. So, put away, cast off, like dirty clothing, like your shoes that are dirty when you come in the house, you take them on, 
uh, because you don't want to mess up what's going on. He's, God's saying, I'm building a home with stones that were purchased at a great price. So, put off, take off your dirty clothes. Take off your dirty clothes. And what are those dirty clothes that he's referring to? He says, put away, cast off all malice. Malice is a desire to hurt people. Remember, that's our selfish natures. When we want something, we want it bad enough, we are willing to hurt other people to get it. That's malice. Malice is that desire to hurt someone to get what you want. But when malice is used in Scripture, it's broader. It's, it's also referring, because that's the heart of all evil and wickedness, isn't it? It's referring to all evil and wickedness in the world. He's like, put away all malice. Don't let it have any place in your life. Put away all deceit. Deceit is the desire to gain advantage by deceiving people. The word literally means to catch with a bait, kind of like we use for fish. That's what deception is. Don't use deceit. Don't desire to get, gain advantage by deception. He says, put away hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the desire not to be known for what one truly is. We want to appear like something we are not. Put hypocrisy away from you. Be who you are. I shouldn't say be who you are. Be honest with who you are. It's not, it's not like the Pharisees who tried to project this righteous outer exterior and Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs. When we say be who you are, that does not justify us staying who we are in our sin. I want to be very clear. Being who we are is being, being honest with others with where we're at in our struggles and our sins and allowing God to speak truth into that. Don't be hypocritical. It says, put off envy. Envy is a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to another, resenting that person for that they have it instead of you. And put away all slander, the desire for revenge and self-enhancement by using your words to humiliate and diminish others. Our status increases at the cost of someone else's status decreasing. The sad thing as I read through this list and study First Peter is that Peter is addressing Christians. You'd like to think that, you know, all the things that he just listed aren't Christian issues. Not only that, he's not just addressing Christians. He's not just addressing even baby Christians. Apparently, and the, and the guy smarter than me said that the church had probably been in existence for at least 30 years. And so there's some 30, not everyone, but there's probably a, quite a few 30-year-old Christians who are still demonstrating these kind of attitudes and thoughts and actions that are contrary to the temple that God is building in Revelation and is contrary to the foundation that he's starting to build on now. And he's saying, if people are going to see and hope in what God has in store for the future and understand that suffering is justified through the cross, they've got to see that now. And that's not going to happen if you are full of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slandering in the church. They're not going to see it. He's calling out believers. He's calling out aged believers. He's calling out some mature believers for this. He's having to tell them to put off these wicked desires. 
In verse 2, it continues on and says, like newborn infants. He's kind of changing a little bit here. It's put this off, put this on. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. One of the first things that I, like, I noticed about this that really stood out to me is that God is commanding our desires. God's commanding our desires. He is Lord over our desires. And you might be sitting there thinking, that's a no-brainer. Like, no, duh, yeah, God's, God's Lord of all. He's Lord of every, every part of me. But it is not as apparent in our lives as we live it, as we express it, as I think we hope it would be. He's saying, you know, in verse 1, he says, put off. He's like, don't desire these things. At the root of all those sins is a wrong desire. So he's saying, put off, throw off those desires. But in verse 2, he's saying, I want you to desire this, the purity of God's word. Desire for this. But again, God is commanding our desires. He's commanding our affections. That makes perfect sense when somebody's like, if somebody came up to you and was like, I want to murder this person that are serious, you'd be like, hold on, hold on, hold on, a Christian too. Hold on a second. That's not good. God tells us not to murder. You've got to change that. That is not a God-honoring desire. You need to change that, right? Can I get agreement that we would all counsel someone like that if they said they're going to murder someone? Thank you. However, someone comes up to you and says, I don't love my husband or my wife anymore. What are we quick to say? That's all right. We can't, I mean, who controls the heart? We all love what we love. And, you know, that's the trump card of all trump cards now. Is God the Lord of our emotions and affections or is he not? Is he Lord of all or is he Lord of nothing? The Bible I look at, God commands all of our emotions and affections. They are all subject to him and his will for our lives. And so we have to affirm both our, the things that we love are subjected to God. The things that we hate are subjected to God. God says, love your enemies. I just changed, I had to change what my desire was to reflect the truth of Scripture and what God requires for my life. So God is commanding our affections and our desires. As I was studying this, I was wondering, why did verse 1 come before verse 2? And I know all you smart Alex is because they're numbers. Verse 1 has to come before verse 2. But not just the numbers, why did it talk about bad desires before it talked about the good? And uh, I don't want to read it in too much to it, but I think, I think it's, it's worth noting that it's hard to enjoy good food while you're eating junk food. We were just up at Camp Barakel, and I was talking to a little guy, and I was like, what you been up to? And he says, eating junk food. And I was like, yeah. I was like, I remember those. Actually, that was yesterday. <laughs> I like that too. But the sad reality is that when we're eating junk food, you're, the, the danger of junk food is that you're not enjoying the good food. And I think that's part of the reason First Peter, you know, Peter's like, put this away. Stop eating this. Stop investing your time and energy and effort and all this and start eating and desiring 
and, uh, you know, and longing for, like an infant longs for pure milk, long for this. God's commanding our desires. That's the degree. As an infant longs for pure milk. How does an infant, for all you mothers and grandmothers, has an infant long for milk? Constantly, incessantly. I can't sleep, day or night. If the baby's not sleeping, the baby is eating kind of thing. That's for us too. It made me think of this passage, you know, um, I will delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night. That's the kind of longing that God has commanded us as his living stones. That's the kind of longing he has commanded us as Christians to have for his word. We can't have that excuse of I love what I love and I don't love what I love and no one can change that. The heart is arbitrary and it loves what it loves. That's not an excuse. God says I am in, I am Lord over your affections and this is what you should, can and will, should long for. And he's told us how to long for that. Put this away, put this, take this on, desire this as pure milk. And the thing is, is in the very next verse, it says, for those of you, for those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The beauty is, is when you put this away, and you've, you've got this appetite, and it's got to be filled, and you take this stuff in, all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's good. Why have I been eating all this junk food for all these years? It's like this revelation. God has shown us how he changes our hearts and our desires and our affections, and it's through obedience to God and his word. That's why he says, desire the pure spiritual milk of God's word. It's interesting when it says pure here in this passage, when it's talking about pure milk, it's the same, pure is the same exact word that is used for deceit. Pure is the same word that is used for deceit earlier on in verse one. The only difference is it put an A right in front of it. And A makes it a, like a non, non-deceitful. Purity is non-deceitful. The merchants during this time were renowned for being very deceptive in their practices. If they were selling milk, it would be watered-down milk. If they were selling wine, it would be watered-down wine. They would have deceptive practices that was, you know, with this milk in particular, that was not nourishing to the degree that it should nourish. And that's a problem. And so when we're desiring this pure spiritual milk, what our desire is for is unwatered down, unfiltered, unadulterated, pure word of God that has not been messed with by men, sometimes pastors even, that have watered it down to make it more appealing or to gain more profit for themselves as a result. God's like, don't desire that kind of stuff. Desire the pure spiritual milk of God's word because in its unadulterated, in its pure form, it is powerful and is beautiful. It says in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is the pure spiritual milk that God has called us to long for and desire as newborn infants long for that pure spiritual milk. And the result is that by it, you may grow up into salvation. We can't grow, we won't grow, unless we are insatiably drinking in God's word. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, we will put off wickedness. 
We will desire, we will subject our desires to the command of God and obedience to his word. We will desire that pure spiritual milk and as a result, we will grow up into salvation and be part of this new home that God is building. One last story to, to finish. I had a, a friend in college. I think I might have shared this story before, but his grandparents came and visited him. And uh, I was talking with him, just shooting the breeze a little bit. And the, the, his grandfather and I were chatting, and uh, he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, we're... We're, I'm going to Moody Bible Institute and studying the Bible, and so, you know, we're talking all account about Bible and church stuff. He's like, yeah, I was back at this big church uh, down south. I won't tell you the name of it, and that doesn't really matter. And they had this, it was a huge national, like a, like a mega church back in the day, and they had this huge program for uh, evangelizing the world. And he was like, yeah, I, was, I knew this pastor. I was with him when he started up, and I was part of this huge program and evangelizing, you know, the community and doing all these great things, and he was telling me all about it. And I was just like, wow, you know, being a college student, I was like, man, hopefully I can do something that cool one day kind of thing, and, that, you know, that's going through my head. But then his wife steps in and says, ask him what he's done recently. And he shut up real quick. He shut up real fast. And the reason why is because he was riding on the wave of past works and past things that God was doing in his life, and he had stopped. He didn't continue growing, growing into. He had stopped growing. He had stopped and that's not God's desire for us. We must continue to grow into these living stones that God is using to create this home where God dwells with his people for eternity, where there's no death, nor pain, no sorrow, no tears, no suffering. We have to put off the wickedness, desire the pure spiritual milk, grow up into salvation, and not live on the tidal waves of the past things and allow God to work in our lives, continue to shape us and mold us and use us for his honor and glory. Because the world is looking at the foundation that, we, that God is creating in our midst right now. And that tells them a lot about the future that they can hope in too. And so I pray we can get this right.